Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is Episode 3, The Island at the Edge of the World, Part 1. This show is free and independent due to member support, and as thanks for keeping the community going, I offer members-only content, such as extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Eric, Paul, and Andrea for contributing already. Now, this episode covers the years 56 BCE to 55 BCE. And today we're going to talk about Gaius Julius Caesar. Just about everyone knows who Julius Caesar was, but for those of you who aren't sure and are wondering if he's just the salad guy, remember that Roman who was stabbed to death on the Senate floor, including by his friend Brutus? And it led to the Shakespearean phrase, et tu, Brute? Well, that's the guy. Now, since you've already listened to the summary of prehistory, you know that British history is long, complex, and storied. There were people here, people with a culture that was their own, and their story was many magnitudes longer than our own written history. The bulk of our history, in fact, is prehistory. So that very much was just a very, very short summary. But now that's done, we're going to begin to focus on the smaller but much better documented period of history where we have a written record. And as is the case with most written history, the recorded history of Britain begins as many national stories do, with invasion. Now, obviously, Britain had already been invaded by giant deer, Neanderthals, Celts, who brought some excellent music and really interesting fashion choices, and a variety of other people. But now, it's going to be invaded by the Romans. And really, that's where the rubber meets the road for Britain. And it's fitting that the story of the occupation of what will eventually become one of the most influential nations in the world began with an invasion by one of the most famous generals in the world, Gaius Julius Caesar. By the time Caesar's destiny intersected with Britannia, he was already proconsul, and the governor of Illyricum, Cisalpine Gaul, and Transalpine Gaul. And he had surely encountered British auxiliaries in the campaigns against the Gallic tribes, and he knew that malcontents and rebel leaders, including the chief of the Bellavaci, had escaped Roman law by traveling across the channel and seeking sanctuary amongst the Brits. And that wasn't a bad choice. Britannia thus far had managed to avoid Roman power and became a stronghold of rebellion, by taking advantage of the fact that the Romans were not a seafaring people. And actually, the ocean gave them the heebie-jeebies. Consequently, the land was a haven and had a sort of mythical quality amongst the Romans. The thing is that no Roman had been to Britannia, so all they knew of it were from the Greeks and from the Gallic allies, and of course, their enemies. Consequently, they probably heard all kinds of fantastical stories about this place, and it began to take on a mythical character in the Roman consciousness. And beyond the myths and rumors they'd heard, they really didn't know too much about it. It was a mysterious and otherworldly place, and as far as the Romans were concerned, this was literally the edge of the world. This was as far west as you could go. It basically occupied the area of the map where you would write, Monsters be here. But if Rome was going to hold continental Europe, this strange island of hardy warriors that had so often crossed the channel to aid their kin and offer sanctuary to Rome's enemies, 
would have to be brought to heel. Now, many people would look at this situation and feel despair. I mean, the Continental Tribes were troublesome all on their own, and they were being assisted by gifted warriors who lived in a land that Caesar's own legions would have been incredibly reluctant to travel to. Had someone else led the legions in Gaul, being presented with the same issue, they might have looked at it and decided that it was a sign that they should cut their losses and return to less dodgy territory. But not Caesar. What he saw was opportunity. In one stroke, he could stabilize his provinces and add substantial power to his name by crossing the feared ocean and bringing the end of the world within the province of Rome. His path could not have been more clearly laid out before him. Caesar's chosen moment of invasion was probably 56 BCE. He certainly had motive, and as for opportunity, he had large numbers of forces stationed in western and Belgic Gaul, which were ideal locations for quick transport across the channel. However, any ambition for Britannia that Caesar might have held had to be put aside when the tribes of the Amorican Peninsula, which is now the Brittany Peninsula, rebelled against Rome. And in true form... They rebelled along with the assistance of the British warriors. Now Strabo tells us that the plan for the rebellion was to prevent a Roman invasion of Britannia. And actually that makes sense, since it would have ended British military support, eliminated a safe harbor for refugees, and it also would have disrupted trade between the two peoples. And the tribes of the Amorican Peninsula had not only a close relationship with Britannia due to trade, but they also shared a common religion and culture. They were both Druidic, and they were both Celtic. So, they rebelled. And depending on your perspective, this rebellion could be seen as successful. I mean, sure, they didn't manage to dislodge the Romans from Gaul, so that's a bummer. However, Caesar was also completely distracted, and consequently, he missed his window to invade Britannia, which, due to the campaigning season, was a pretty narrow window. So that's pretty good, but there was also a significant downside. Namely, Britannia's involvement with the rebellion also provided Rome further cause for war. Oops. And as you might have guessed, the following year in 55 BCE, Caesar looked for a little strike back and went about preparing to cross the channel in force. But once again, he was thwarted. And before he could prepare a fleet, a large host of Germanic warriors crossed the Rhine. And that went against the very clear Roman plan that mandated civilization stayed on this side of the Rhine and the dirty barbarians stayed on that side of the Rhine. So it was certainly a problem for Caesar. But the truth of it is that it was more of a nuisance than a real threat to life and limb. The area was heavily populated with veteran Roman legions that had turned warfare into a sort of strange industrial machine that ground the enemy into burger. Large host or not, the legions of Caesar would make short work of them. But it still was an irritation since the vast majority of the campaigning season had passed before the legions finished mopping up the remnants of the German army. Thus, it wasn't until August of 55 BCE that Caesar was finally able to turn his gaze upon the people that had meddled in his conquests on the continent and occupied that strange, mysterious island at the edge of the world. Unfortunately, Caesar didn't have suitable transports, nor the time necessary for a full-scale invasion. 
Additionally, there were legal issues that had to be dealt with regarding the contemplated invasion. Rome dealt harshly with governors who acted illegally outside their own provinces, and Caesar had powerful enemies in the Senate who would not miss an opportunity to bring the general down. Now, before you say, ah, bureaucratic killjoys, considering what this rule is actually preventing, it's really not a terrible idea. You can't have governors running around and invading other countries. I mean, seriously, if the governor of California went and invaded Mexico, we'd have a pretty big problem on our hands, wouldn't we? Even if it was Arnold Schwarzenegger, the governator, you'd still have a major international incident. The fact of the matter is, you just can't have governors running around starting wars. So, Caesar needed a way to justify his wanton need to invade Britannia, thus gaining another province and more power, while also protecting himself from the accusations of being a war criminal, which almost certainly would be leveled against him. It was a big problem. And on top of that, he didn't have the number of sea transports that he really wanted. Oh, he still had a lot but not as many as he would have liked. Ever the tactician, though, Caesar turned these weaknesses into a point of strength by putting together a small expeditionary force. This would allow him to gather intelligence for a later full-scale invasion, and also it would allow him to test the waters of Roman public opinion. Should the Senate be outraged by his actions, Caesar could argue that this was simply a punitive excursion to deal with the tribes that incited rebellion in his own lands. After all, they had to learn that resisting the power of Rome carried heavy consequences. But, if the expedition was successful, and the Senate approved of his expedition, then he would be able to ask for more time, and more men. And he would also have valuable military information for future invasions. Not too shabby, right? This guy was slick. So, now that he was confident that his political flank was secure, Caesar made his preparations. And what's really interesting is that we don't have any records of Caesar having to deal with any issues of morale regarding this invasion. Now, some of you might be thinking, eh, what's the big deal? It's just a short jaunt across the channel. But this was actually an enormous undertaking for the Romans, and one that was filled with fear and danger. The thing is that this wasn't just the English Channel to the Romans. It was one part of an enormous river god that encircled the world. It was a strange and ancient god named Oceanus, who even predated Neptune, the god of the Mediterranean. It was Oceanus who refused to get involved with the Titans' war with the Olympians, despite the fact that he was a Titan himself. And it was Oceanus who again abstained from Saturn's war against Kylus. If Oceanus had an agenda, it was not something that could be easily understood by the Romans. He was an enigma, and to make matters worse, he controlled all the waters beyond the Pillars of Hercules, what we now call the Strait of Gibraltar. So this land that they were traveling to was cast in the middle of this strange ancient god who didn't take part in the plots of the gods of Rome. Pretty scary stuff. And I suppose it should give you an idea of the level of trust that the legions had in the general. From their perspective, they must have thought that, well, if Caesar felt that it could be accomplished, then they would just see it done. And Caesar wanted Britannia, so the legions would give it to him. Understandably, this made the British tribes rather nervous, so tribal ambassadors were sent to make peace with the Roman general. Meanwhile, Caesar sent two ships to Britannia. One ship was tasked with surveying the coast. It presumably traveled along the southern coast of Britannia, 
and there it determined that Dover was the best spot to land. Now, we don't know why the navigator selected Dover, considering the fact that Richborough was in the area that he was searching and was a much better harbor, and actually would be later used by Claudius 100 years later. But whatever the reason, the navigator said, yes, this is the place. Dover is going to be great. And he came back to Caesar to tell him that. The other ship that was sent out was carrying the British tribal ambassadors, and also Commius, the king of the Atrebates. And they were tasked with negotiating some sort of peace. But right from the start, you could see cracks in this plan. The thing is that Commius had only been king for about 15 minutes. Well, to be fair, he was king since 57 BCE, which, coincidentally, was when Caesar installed him on the throne. And many things have changed throughout history. But in general, puppet kings, which is what Commius was, don't tend to command a lot of respect. However, Commius was reputed to have a large amount of influence upon the southeastern British, and Caesar hoped to utilize him as an envoy to make peace with as many British tribes as possible. So Commius was sent to land on the shores of Britannia and contact as many tribes as he could, and broker as many peace agreements as possible. But as you might have guessed, it seems that Commius was overestimating his abilities. Or maybe Caesar put too much faith in Commius's charm. But whatever the reason, Commius was arrested by the British as soon as he landed on the shore. Tough break. And so it was at midnight, on August 26, 55 BCE, that Caesar set sail from an unnamed port in Morini, accompanied by 80 ships carrying the 7th and 10th legions, about 10,000 men in total. And yeah, this was just an expeditionary force. It sounds like an army, doesn't it? But yeah, just an expeditionary force. Sure, Caesar. And not satisfied with 10,000 men, another approximately 500 cavalry were ordered to march to another port, most likely Ambletus, and embark on 18 transport ships that were there and set sail as soon as possible. By nine in the morning, Caesar was anchored near the White Cliffs of Dover the site that had been hand-picked by his navigator. And all along the cliffs, he saw lines of heavily armed men ready for war. This sight must have been incredibly disheartening, because he would have learned two things at once, and neither of them were good. The first was that his surveyor was an absolute idiot. Sure, Dover could be used as a landing site, but with the position of the cliffs, it also happened to be a natural fortress for any angry Britons who caught wind of their approach. And from the look of things, there were quite a few of them. From up on those cliffs, the Britons could easily hurl missile weapons down upon the disembarking Romans without any fear of reprisal. To land there would be a massacre. Dover was a non-starter, and Caesar had to find somewhere else. And the second thing you would have realized was that Commius was less than brilliant himself. Commius's only task was to broker peace and ensure that Caesar wasn't going to arrive to find himself beset on all sides by angry natives. And yet, what did he see on the cliffs? Angry natives. Not only had Commius failed to broker peace, but he'd lost Caesar the element of surprise, and now the whole region was ready for war. You had one job, Commius. But this wasn't the first time that Caesar found himself in a tight spot. So he met with his officers and he planned his next move, while he waited for the slower-moving transports to arrive. After all, he had an advantage the barbarians did not. 
he had the legions. By three o'clock, the remainder of the transports had joined him, and the fleet moved northwards to a beach between Deal and Walmer. But that trip northward did little to improve their morale. Wherever they went, they were followed by these heavily armed and strangely painted warriors, and some of them were riding chariots. Yeah, the Britons rode chariots, and surprisingly well. Also, the closer they got to the Britons, the more it became clear that they were armed not just in bronze, but also in iron. These weren't Stone Age savages, nor were they cowardly. Despite seeing the fleet of 80 ships and the 10,000 hardened soldiers that they carried, these Britons didn't seem frightened at all. In fact, they looked excited. This expedition was going from bad to worse, and it was clear to Caesar that he would need his men to disembark onto the beaches as rapidly as possible. The strength of the legion lay in its organization. The clean lines and heavily regimented movements were key to their successes in battle. At the blow of a whistle, the entire front line could be replaced by a fresh group of soldiers without anyone missing a beat. This ensured that the legions stayed fresh. But that only worked if they were lined up. If they were in open formation, they would have to fight like these barbarians, with the front line being only relieved if they fell or if they won the battle. And the open formation would also rob them of their other advantage, their short swords. Their weapons were ideal for close quarters fighting, where men stood shoulder to shoulder and they were just crushed in. This gave them an edge over the barbarians, but again, only if their formations were in order. So for this to work, the Roman soldiers would have to rush from their transports and form up before the Britons, who were racing towards them on chariots, had a chance to engage them. Luckily, they were supported by archers, slings, and artillery from the lighter warships, and that would hopefully slow down the British advance. But despite all of this, and all of their relentless training, and of course their many victories under Caesar's command, the famed Roman discipline started to waver. And the issue was the water. The thing is that the Romans were heavily armored, and the shelved nature of the beach meant that the legions would have to disembark into deep waters. And if that wasn't bad enough, they would have to jump into the deep water and try and make their way to land, all while being attacked by the Britons occupying the shallow water. This was a terrible situation, and fear began to sweep over the legions. And we're told that it was at this moment that the standard bearer for the 10th legion bravely jumped into the water, shouting, quote, Leap, fellow soldiers, unless you wish to betray your eagle to the enemy. I, for my part, will perform my duty for the commonwealth and my general, end quote. But I seriously doubt that he said that. My guess is that he said, Get in the f***ing water, you cowards, or you're going to lose your f***ing eagle. But whatever he said, he jumped in and he charged. And something that needs to be explained here, because it's not obvious, is what the eagle was. See, the eagle bearer carried, of course, the eagle. That part is obvious. But the eagle is really important, and it's hard to put into a modern context because we really don't have anything similar in our modern military. We have standards and things like that, but nothing that carries a similar amount of weight. Essentially, the eagle was the physical embodiment of the legion's morale. It was basically a religious artifact. So to let the eagle fall, or even worse, let the eagle be taken by the enemy, was a horrifying thought for the Roman legions. Think about it more along the lines of maybe desecrating a holy site. 
So, upon seeing the Eagle Bearer wading through the water and into battle with these crazed blue-painted men, the legions had no choice but to follow and protect him. And once the 10th Legion was engaged, the 7th couldn't very well just sit back and watch. If nothing else, shame propelled them forward. So now both legions were finally in the water, and Caesar must have breathed a huge sigh of relief. But what I like about this story is that we have the example of an ordinary unknown man, completely unnamed, we don't know what his name was at all, and he single-handedly changed the course of the battle, and possibly the invasion. Had it not been for his actions, that fear and static inertia could well have continued to build up. After all, the Romans were already thoroughly spooked just by the fact that they were sailing on the channel. And it makes me wonder that if he hadn't charged forward, could there have been a mutiny? And if there was a mutiny, what would have happened to Caesar? It could have changed the entire course of Roman history. But he did charge the Britons, and therefore, we'll never know. Now, due to the nature of the beach, the legions were not able to maintain their ranks. As we mentioned, the Romans preferred to fight as a unit, and that ordered machine of war fell apart in the chaotic melee, and things became a lot more dangerous for them as a consequence. And conversely, the Britons were completely at home in a chaotic melee. They essentially didn't know any other way to fight. So they fearlessly charged forward into the shallow water and engaged the Romans, who were still mired in the deeper water. And you might think this was bad. And, you know, it certainly didn't look good. But keep in mind that you're dealing with 10,000 heavily trained and armored Romans, not to mention artillery, missile weapons, and, of course, Caesar observing from his ship being able to direct boats to carry reinforcements to areas where the battle was wavering. So despite the ferocity of the British attack and their stronger position, the Romans were able to push the fight from the deep water to the shallow water, and then from the shallow water to the beach. And as soon as the legions reached dry ground, they quickly formed ranks and made a directed attack upon the British. Imagine a wall of shields with lines upon lines of men behind them. As the Britons approached, they might have been struck by javelins. Those in close combat had to contend with the Roman gladius, the deadly short sword which could quickly slice through the lightly armored Britons. And if the Britons were able to avoid the gladius, they still needed to deal with the enormous shield, which could be used as a bashing weapon. The battle was clearly turning. And the worst part of it is that if the Britons were able to get close enough to the Roman unit, probably by standing upon their fallen comrades, and parry the thrust of the gladius, and then negotiate the shield wall enough to strike at the Romans standing behind it. Even if they managed to strike true, and one of the Roman soldiers in front of them fell, another one would just step up and take his place. There were no end to these men, and they were making mincemeat out of the Britons. Needless to say, the effectiveness of organized legions broke the morale of the Britons and they soon ran for their chariots and escaped. Now, the absence of Roman cavalry must have been keenly felt by the general and his men. See, the issue here is that when the Britons broke, they jumped on their chariots, and they made a speedy getaway. Roman infantry could never catch up with a chariot, and consequently, they are unable to run down the retreating barbarians. So the victory wasn't complete. However, it still was a victory, and that placed him in a good negotiating position when the British sent ambassadors seeking peace later that day. And Caesar's attitude towards these ambassadors was, to say the least, indignant. From his perspective, the British tribes had voluntarily sent ambassadors to him to make peace once before, 
And yet, upon his arrival, they imprisoned his envoy and declared war upon Rome. And from that point of view, you can totally understand why he was a bit ticked off. The British ambassadors responded that this wasn't their fault at all, and it definitely wasn't the fault of their chiefs. Rather, it was just the common people acting on their own. And blaming the powerless for the poor decisions made by their leaders was as common back then as it is today. And ancient negotiations are strikingly similar to modern negotiations in one key way. Namely, it's likely that both parties were lying. While the British didn't have the complex political structure of Rome, there still was a hierarchy in order to British life. And it's unlikely that the common people unilaterally captured Caesar's envoy and then organized into a large armed fighting force without any support from their leaders. It's just a bit of a stretch. Conversely, Caesar's claims that he was merely seeking peace were certainly undercut by the presence of 80 ships, including warships, and 10,000 soldiers. Peace. Uh Uh-huh. But regardless of any deceptions, Caesar's demands were agreed to, and the British promised hostages, the dismissal of their levies, and the return of Commius. And again, if the British ambassadors and chiefs weren't in charge of the British army, how on earth could they go and dismiss the army? It just doesn't make sense. But whatever. Over the next several days, word spread of Caesar's victory, and chiefs from distant tribes arrived, also seeking peace and offering surrender. Caesar was supreme in southern Britannia, and it was beginning to look like he would conquer the entire province, having fought a single battle. Okay, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And actually, there are all kinds of ways you can get involved. We have a vibrant and active community, and we would like you to join it. So just go over to thebritishhistorypodcast.com and have a poke around. We'll see you over there. Thanks for listening. <laughs>